Friends, we're going to turn to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 20. But we're not going to actually, we're not going to go through all of that in a sermon. Unless you really want to be here until tomorrow. <laughs> I, could do, I could do three hours if you want. Robbie's like, yeah, to bring it on. <laughs> uh, no, but we're going to read the whole thing so we get the flow. Uh, of what God is doing here. And then we're going to really focus in on t- uh, three verses, actually two verses, verses 14 and 15. So brothers and sisters, let's read Genesis 3:14 through 20. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go. And you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children, and your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the, vo- the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Thus far the reading of God's word. Brothers and sisters, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we see before us sobering history. But Lord, we also see in this sobering history the glimmers of the glorious grace that you pour out on your people in Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that we would take warning from this passage, but that we would also take hope and peace and joy. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was uh, at college in uh, Mequon, Wisconsin, I went to a Lutheran college. And at that Lutheran college, my major was history, which is ironic because I'm horrible at history. But anyway, it was fun. You know, I didn't, didn't take any math to be a history major, so I said, good enough. Um, and and I, I sat in on a bunch of these history classes. I took a bunch of history courses. And, and the first year I was there, the head of the department, you know, was teaching a class I was in. And she said, all right, this is your first year. Most of you, this is your first year, your first history class with this institution. Why are you taking this course? Why are you taking this history course? And some people were like, well, we want to learn from the past. I was being a bit of a goof, and I said, I want to accumulate good baby names for when I have uh, children down the road from these historical figures. And that actually did happen. Um, (laughs) But the folks who were were saying, we want to learn from the past, that was a more genuine answer. And the, the professor actually engaged with those folks and said, well, are you going to learn from the history that you're studying? And everybody's like, oh yeah, we're going to learn. And this lady says, well, what about the fact that history tends to be cycles and cycles and cycles of people doing the same things over and over again? 
And we're all like, well, I don't know about that, you know. And so as we went through the course, she showed us how this happens. Humanity has a problem, a big problem. And then someone comes along, a hero, you know, someone who's triumphant, a king perhaps, or a leader, or a nation, and they rise up and they set things right, and then it declines and deteriorates, and you're back to the same problem. And another person comes along trying to fix it, and to bring good out of bad. And over and over and over we see this. It's happened through all of secular history. It has happened through, my goodness, we saw it today in the the Sunday school class, church history as well. We see it even in the Bible, in the book of Judges. Someday I want to preach through the book of Judges. Be so fun and and really earthy too. Uh, But but the book of Judges is, is, you know, it's known as the book of cycles. Over and over you have have sin, you have chastisement, you've got uh, so much... Um, chastisement that, that the people cry out to God and God sends a judge that sets them free and they're, they're happy and, and, and they're having fun and they start doing things that are right in their own eyes and then God sends chastisement again and they need another judge. Cycles are everywhere we see in history. They, they're everywhere we look in history. And yet behind that, or maybe through that and over that, there is this one theme of history that does not go in cycles. It is the only theme of history that doesn't get good, get bad, get good, get bad. You know, it's one thing that is constantly progressing, and that is the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Specifically, it's the redemption of Jesus Christ. Now, there wasn't much call for us to think about this in the first two chapters of Genesis. Things were good. There was no problem, really. But then as the the chapters continue, as chapter 3 begins, mankind falls. And right here kicks off before our eyes something that God has already planned from eternity past. He plants a seed in Genesis 3 that starts to grow, that flourishes into a tree on the cross. And then we live in the after effects of that history. And it's triumph. Maybe not very visible triumph through the early period of Israel. But triumph nonetheless as God's people look to his redeeming grace that is promised in Jesus Christ. Again, like I said, that was brought up, that was the seed was planted in the first sentence or the first curse placed on sinners here in Genesis 3. We see specifically this come up in God's sentence proclaimed on the serpent. So this morning, we're going to uh, take a look at this thing. We're going to follow this theme that God's redeeming grace is revealed even in the first curse. And we're going to look at three separate points. First, we're going to look at the serpent's seed. And then we're going to look at the seeds of the gospel. And then at the end, we're going to look at the woman's seed. So first, the serpent's seed. As we look back at the the beginning of chapter 3 and the response of God to finding sin in his presence, we see a a fascinating parallel. There's a structural parallel in this chapter. Remember what happens first. The serpent, craftier than all other animals, comes into the garden. And who does he go after first? It's Eve, the woman. She's not named Eve yet. But he goes after Eve. And then Eve then goes to Adam. Probably not a long walk away. It seems like she just hands Adam this, this fruit. And Adam says, okay, sounds good takes and eats, and mankind falls. We see the exact same order and pattern here as God brings his sentence to these three. He starts with the serpent, and then he goes to the woman, and then he goes to the man. 
This is the order that we see. This order is not a mistake. We see the strictest punishment leveled at the servant, followed by more merciful consequences handed down to Adam and then to Eve. Today we're just going to focus on the serpent, like I said. The first thing we see in verse 14 is the pronouncement of judgment on the serpent itself. So think snake here. Don't so much think Satan quite yet. God says, the Lord God, well, Genesis says, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. Now, a couple of clarifications that we should take note of. First of all, God holds the the serpent or the snake accountable. This begins with the actual serpent, slithery. I'm not talking about Satan yet. He holds the serpent accountable. This animal seems to have been used by Satan to lie and murder. We ask, why would the serpent itself be to blame? Interestingly, the answer is found in chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, God blesses Adam and his wife. And he says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the ground. The animals, including the the serpent, were created for the benefit of mankind. They were there not to sow doubt between God and man. They were there to benefit and be subject to the delegated authority of Adam and his wife. But the serpent was crafty. I think we can get from this that he went along with whatever uh, instinct there was to serve Satan. God says, because you have done this, you are cursed. And this is cursed in an active sense. After mankind's fallen to sin, there is a difference between the curse that falls on a serpent and the curse that falls on, say, a cow. This is kind of interesting to think about. All of creation groans as it awaits restoration. All of creation faces some pollution or consequence to the sin of Adam and Eve. You say, well, how does a a cow face a consequence? That cow is going to die, isn't it? That cow is going to face sickness and death, all because of what Adam and Eve did in the garden. But the curse that comes down on the serpent is not just, okay, so like all the other animals, you're going to die. There seems to be something more here, more shameful. There's a difference in the position and the reputation that are now given to the serpent. We see this in the pronouncement of God leveled at the serpent. He says, on your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. Now it would be wrong to take this to mean that snakes used to have legs, and that their legs were taken away from them as part of the curse. I don't think we can make that jump. If we were to make that jump, then we'd also have to say that snakes actually literally eat dust which they don't. And so, we recognize here that there's some figurative language that's being used. So we ask, what is the punch of God's pronouncement of punishment on the serpent? What is he really getting at here? If we look at Psalm 44, one of the Psalms of Torah, we see a glimmer of the answer. In Psalm 44, verse 23, the sons of Korah cry out to God. They say, Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. 
They find themselves, they describe themselves in a position of shame. They are licking the dust. They are belly to the ground. They are so bowed down. This is a picture of shame that the sons of Korah use in this psalm. They describe what it looks like to be abandoned by God. And then look at Micah chapter 7 verse 15. Micah proclaims the truth. He says, As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God. They shall be in fear of you. Again, we have a picture of shame and terror at the face and justice of God. And this picture includes licking the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. What God is saying here to the serpent is, you shall be ashamed, you shall be lower and debased because of what you have done. He pronounces his displeasure on this cunning creature and he holds us holds the creature to account for its role in the fall. God himself will say in Genesis chapter 9, verse 5, Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it, and from the hand of man. So if someone stands up and kills their neighbor, they are responsible for the lifeblood of the person that they kill. But guess what? God will hold the animal that kills a human being accountable too. Because human beings are created in God's image. And so justice is done here. This is how highly God values mankind. He holds the serpent responsible for the serpent's involvement in the temptation of mankind. Now it's interesting that the shame and the debasement applies to Satan as well. We don't think highly of Satan. (laughs) I hope we don't. Satan is a shameful creature. He's described as a murderer from the beginning. He's described as the father of lies. The shame that is given to the serpent also applies to Satan as well. There's a good bit of bleed over here as well. Look at God's words in verse 15. He progresses this idea. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Here we start to move away from God talking to a snake. And we start to, to move towards God talking towards or to Satan. It might be tempting to think of this as just the foundation of the the near universal distaste that mankind has for snakes. It certainly seems like there are very few animals that humans despise more than snakes. Even around here, there's, there's the good bull snakes and there's the bad rattlesnakes, but there's still quite a few sensible folk who will chop off snake heads first and ask questions later. Human beings don't like snakes. It's like... I think worse than spiders. You'll still, friends, we'll see this this conflict and this enmity between human beings and snakes. But the truth that unfolds in the rest of the scripture, it, it takes the curse a good bit farther than just mere aphidophobia. That's the fear of snakes. I learned that word this week. God is not just talking about aphidophobia. He's talking about something deeper, spiritually. As we pointed out from the beginning of chapter 2, the snake is not just a snake. It's an instrument of Satan. 
and how this exactly works, Genesis doesn't tell us. But we do see in John chapter 8, 44, Jesus refers to the devil as a murderer and a liar from the beginning. We see from Revelations 12, Revelation 12 and Revelation 20, the devil referred to as the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. So the truth is clear. God is holding the great adversary, Satan himself, responsible when he pronounces this curse. Furthermore, included in the curse is the seed of the serpent. We say, who is the seed of the serpent? On one level, the seed of the serpent is the kingdom and the forces of darkness. Now, we don't take this too far because, of course, the demons are not the children of Satan. We don't see that in Scripture. But what we do see is that they are the followers, and to call them the seed of the serpent would not be too far off. But included in this is those who ally themselves or join forces with the kingdom of darkness. Friends, we're going to see some really interesting stuff in the the weeks to come. Months to come, maybe. Got Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel, born to Adam and Eve. Abel is a, 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 a study case for the seed of the woman. He seems to have his head on straight. He serves and honors God. He listens to God. Everything seems good with him. He would be a classic example of the seed of the woman. But then we see Cain, born to Eve, and yet willing to join forces with Satan. It's not an official, I want to join Satan. But God says, sin is crouching at your door. If you're not careful, it'll overtake you. And he says, you know what? It's worth more to kill my brother than it is to follow my God. And so there in Cain, we see one of the children of mankind joining forces with the kingdom of darkness. We see the tension between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Now what will happen to the serpent and his seed? God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's interesting that because Satan tried to sow unnatural enmity between mankind and God, God responds by sowing true enmity between mankind and Satan, between the tempter and the tempted. Now, some would see in this pronouncement on the serpent a very straightforward set of consequences. But behind these words, we see God tell us something about his nature. And this is really our second point, the seeds of the gospel. Friends, we see specifically God's justice displayed here. Let's ponder the justice of the Creator before we continue on to what this tells us about the seed of the woman. First, we see in God's pronouncement of justice, we see His infinite knowledge of His creation. Who does God question when He goes to Adam and Eve in the garden? He questions Adam first. Adam sidesteps and blame shifts and points fingers. Then who does he ask? Well, Eve. Eve is the next one there. Eve does some of the same sort of thing that Adam did. And then does he ask the serpent, what have you done? No, he knows what the serpent did, just like he knows what Adam and Eve did. But he reaches out to Adam and Eve. He gives them a chance to confess their sin. He knows what the serpent did, and he pronounces judgment. He knows the hearts. He knows the motives. He knows the sin of all of his creations. But notice as well his swift response to evil. God is a holy God. Here we see his justice. He is completely set apart by nature from sin. He is 
himself without sin, and he does not allow sin to go unpunished. We see that in Hebrews 9, 21. So God's nature demands that he respond to sin and evil doing with justice. And that's exactly what we see him doing here. With holy wrath against the evil that's entered his garden, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The first three words are so key. God doesn't say, I will let there be enmity. Or just, there will be enmity. No, he says, I will put enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. God actively takes a role here. He is the one who will put enmity between Satan and his kingdom and the seed of the woman. Mankind is not left to become mere pawns of the kingdom of darkness. No, there will be warfare between Adam and Eve's descendants and Satan himself. Now here we see the seeds planted for the history of redemption that unfolds through the rest of Scripture. The great conflict between the seed of the woman and the kingdom of darkness. It becomes much clearer as God says, He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We'll get to that in a second. But the seeds of the the spiritual conflict are already visible when God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman between your seed and her seed. It's already visible what God is doing. What enmity do we see? You know, is God just saying, okay, so I'm going to pit you against each other. And mankind's going to have the choice of whether they, they fight the kingdom of darkness or they join my kingdom. That's not what God is saying. That's not what we see in our lives. We're sinners. Before we are redeemed by Christ, every decision we make is sinful and it goes against God. But friends, it's also true that God has written his law on our hearts. Romans 2 reminds us that Even an unbeliever has the law of God engraved on their hearts. They know right from wrong and sin from law-keeping, good from evil. But while they know right from wrong, mankind is bound by nature to follow their father, Adam, into sin. So friends, the seed of the woman left to their own devices, we're talking about normal generations, they're not going to actually overcome the serpent. If God had just said, Eve, your kids are going to win this, there's no way. There's no way that could work. Because Eve's kids, Eve's generations that follow from Eve are sinful. They might know good from evil. They're still born in sin and they're subjected to futility. They are children of wrath, as Ephesians tells us, destined for destruction. Which is why the next phrase in Genesis Genesis 3 is so incredibly comforting. God says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He... The woman's seed will bruise the head of the serpent, and the serpent will bruise the heel of the woman's seed. It's not they, it's he. It's not your seed, all of your seed will bruise the head of the serpent. No, it's he, the ultimate seed, will bruise the head of the serpent. Now, it should be mentioned here that there are quite a few modern scholars who look at this and they see nothing nothing but normal snake smashing and and human biting. (laughs) They say, why take this any farther? Why complicate it? Humans kill snakes, and usually the way you kill a snake is by stamping on its head or cutting its head off, right? No problem there. And snakes bite humans, and usually they can only reach the foot. So, yeah, I mean, it all makes sense, right? Why complicate this would be the question from modern commentators. 
Well, friends, as, as Bible believers, as Bible readers, we really don't want to overcomplicate things. We don't want to read too much into the text, right? Creative theology is usually dangerous theology. We stick with the simple meaning of the text. If all that we had of Scripture was Genesis 1 through 3, we might want to just say, maybe this is just snakes versus humans. But guess what? We have more. We have all of the New Testament. We have all of the Old Testament. We see this battle waged by God ultimately come to a triumphant close in the cross of Jesus Christ. Look with me at Romans chapter 5, verse 18. In Romans 5, 18, the Apostle Paul, speaking by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all, pe- all men, resulting in condemnation, even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. And who's he talking about? Is he talking about the Apostle Paul himself? No. Maybe Peter, the mouthpiece of the Apostles? No, it's Jesus. Jesus is the one who sets things right after Adam made them so wrong. Friends, when we read Genesis 3 through the the lens of Romans chapter 5, A beautiful truth becomes very clear to us. God was revealing to us his plan for the redemption and the restoration of humanity, even in the garden. God was not going to let sin and Satan win. Rather, he had already planned for his son to become the second greater Adam. The second representative of mankind. Everybody was broken by Adam, and now everybody will be set right. All of God's people will be set right and saved. By Jesus Christ. Through the sin of mankind's first representative, there was the fall. But then through the righteousness and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the second representative, life would be given to God's people once more. It's not just life that's promised. It's victory. In Jesus' life and death and resurrection, the kingdom of darkness is overthrown. The head of God's great adversary is crushed. This is what God meant when he said, He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. On the cross of Calvary, Jesus crushed the serpent's head. Now, of course, that wasn't clear to Satan right away. It probably looked to Satan like he had won. He had crushed the head of Christ. And yet, that's not the actual truth. While Satan is a murderer from the beginning, Jesus is the Lord of life. He's the way and the truth and the life. The grave could not hold our Savior. What looked like a crushing defeat on the cross actually became a smashing victory as the stone rolled back from the mouth of the tomb and Christ rose triumphant over death and the devil. The cross was really nothing more than a bruise to the heel of Christ because Christ rose from the dead. And yet... It was also nothing short of a head-crushing blow to Satan and his forces. And this is not all. Elsewhere in the New Testament, we see references back to this description of bruising and crushing that, that highlight the glorious truth in Genesis 3, the truth that Christ's triumphant victory will one day be visible to all men. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 tells us of Christ's final triumph on the last day. 
Then comes the end, says Paul, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. So in the cross, we see victory. Christ triumphs over Satan on the cross. The head of the serpent is crushed on the cross. Christ, he crushes the head of that serpent, even as he dies, and especially as he rises. But brothers and sisters, there will be one day where that victory is plain and apparent and glorious before our very eyes. What is already ours in principle, victory in Jesus Christ, will be absolutely, visibly demonstrated to everyone on the final day. For Jesus Christ, the King of all, sits down to judge and to rule, and we gather around his throne and see our victorious snake crusher. The devil, whose head Christ had already spiritually crushed, it will be placed beneath the feet of our Savior as he victoriously judges the world on that final day. This is the day that Paul is looking forward to in Romans 16 when he tells the church, Therefore I am glad on your behalf, but I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil, and the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. Isn't that beautiful? Romans looks back and it says, the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. Had Satan already been been spiritually crushed? Yes, absolutely. The resurrection took away the sting of death. Satan is defeated even now today. And yet we still deal with the effects of his perversion and his slavery that he, he holds over this world. Friends, One day, everyone will see the victorious Christ crush Satan under his feet. Friends, this is the culmination of the history introduced in Genesis 3. God says you are not stuck in a cycle of futility. No, there will be warfare between heaven and hell, God and Satan. But one day, Jesus, the seed of the woman, Jesus, the son of man, will triumph over Satan and his forces. He will break the power of Satan as he he dies and rises again. He will one day appear even again as the victorious Christ at the end of time. On that day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Not just because Jesus is all that, but because Jesus is victorious. Friends, this is the beautiful history that's introduced in Genesis 3. This is the seed of the gospel that's planted here in this brief description of the enmity, of the conflict between the seeds, the two seeds. Today, though, we live in the aftermath of Christ's victory. Adam and his his family had to look forward to a promise. I think we'll find in the coming chapters that they they hoped and they prayed that, that this conflict would be settled in their own lifetime. But we know that generations, thousands of years go by before Christ arrives on the scene to set things right. And now we lived in the aftermath of that. We await his triumphant coming. While the Old Testament believers only had the seed and only the promise that God would one day triumph, we today have so much more. We don't need to pessimistically fear what might happen in the future. 
We can instead have confidence that the God of peace, who has already defeated death and the devil, will crush Satan under our feet shortly. This is our hope, and this is our confidence as we look to the future. We know that Christ has won. And the story of that victory was begun in the garden as God said, I'll put enmity between you. And Christ will crush your head. Even though you try to bruise his heel, Christ will crush your head. Friends, that is our hope and our peace. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do pray that we would relish the thought of the coming of our victorious Savior, Jesus Christ. Give us confidence in this victorious Savior. Give us peace as we wait for his coming. Lord, we pray as well that we would not let our guard down, that we would not allow ourselves to be tempted and drawn away from you just as Adam was. Help us instead to say, no, we are redeemed by Jesus, the seed of the woman. We are changed. Lord, help us to serve as part of your family, as part of your friends. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.